I'm Tiff, and we're your Curious Cousins. Where we talk about everything kooky and spooky in the state of Oklahoma. Welcome to episode 28. Welcome. It's been a little bit. It has. Been a few weeks. Yes. We've missed you. Oh, thanks. (laughs) I've missed being here. Yes, yes. Then um, had some family stuff and then some personal stuff go on, so... You know, life. Life, exactly, exactly. But everyone seems to be on the mend. Everything seems to possibly be on the mend. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. So, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. How have you been? Uh, good. Good. I'm on spring break right now. Lucky. I know. Well, it's nice. It is nice. I have just, you know, spent a lot of money (laughs) on stuff, but (laughs) having fun in the process, right? Yeah. For sure. Anywho, it's that time where my kids new, need new clothes. And, oh, yeah. And I needed some. I got Easter outfits taken care of. Well, and they just recently started baseball. Yes, both are starting baseball. So I had uniforms that they've both, I've had to purchase for both. Now it's batting practice and regular practice and dodging rainstorms. Right. So, yeah. but yeah, it's been, hasn't been too bad and just doing all fine. <laughs> My coworkers taking off tomorrow and Friday to watch March Madness. Oh, so. nice, nice. My husband, yeah. husband came home with his bracket uh, yesterday or the day before. I can't remember. Yeah, my coworker Ruben made me fill mine out because our work does a thing. Oh yeah, and um, I'm not a sports person, so <laughs> like I could care less, you know. But he was like, "You can do it." So actually. He sat at the computer, and then he was like, Bulldogs or the Falcons? Like, it was like that kind of thing, so it was based off mascots. That's fine. Except for a few. You'll probably be the one who wins at all. Well, funny thing, last year, I think he made me do it based off colors, Mm -hmm. and I ended up going further in in the bracket than he did. He was out, like, really quick, and I think (laughs) I was, like, maybe in the top ten, I think. Nice, nice. Well, in our work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, anyway. Well, awesome. Yeah. No, yeah. We just have been going. We missed talking with each other last week, but we need to yeah. take care of some stuff. And last week was insane yeah. for me anyways because I had parent-teacher conferences, then my oldest son's second grade musical, <laughs> and <laughs> just everything leading up to uh-huh. um, we had, like, baseball practice their first full week of baseball practice mm-hmm. and my husband is the assistant coach for my youngest son so that essentially makes me the um chaperone or right chauffeur chauffeur, chauffeur for the oldest one so yeah. it was right now it's it's, it's calmed down now that's good so games start next week and I think, unfortunately, we're both going to miss a lot of the other child's games simply because they have practice on the nights that one has a game and one has a game on the nights the other has practice. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's that. But other than that, not any, a lot of mute news. I know that last count we were at 386 followers on Facebook. Mm-hmm. So not quite to our 400. So no, no giving quite. away a book yet. It's coming. Yes, hopefully it's coming. And the lucky winner will then get to choose between our favorite Oklahoma books. Mm-hmm. It could be a true crime book, or it could be a paranormal book, or it could just be a fun history book. 
Yeah, we'll let you pick. Well, it is Women's History Month. It is Women's History Month. And so let's hear it for the girls. So we wanted to both cover famous female Oklahomans. Yes. And, um, you know, remind remind everybody that we're doing fine, Oklahoma. <laughs> so I, the woman I am covering, I had learned about from my very first case oh. that we covered. And she's always been on my back burner. And then I listened to another podcast. It's called a very okay podcast, and it's put on by the Oklahoma Historical Society, uh-huh. and they covered women's suffrage, and they talked about her, uh-huh. so I thought it would just be a good idea for me to go ahead and dig my heels in, and I will tell you, I just scra- I just scratched the surface with yeah. her. I could have done, I and mean, we could have had a whole series on her, like several episodes <laughs> worth of information about this woman, and how she, you know, grew to fame, mm-hmm. and then, like, just the tragic ending of her story. So, mm-hmm. do you want me to go first? Can't wait. Yeah, might as well. Okay. Go ahead and dive okay. right in. Okay. So, I am covering Kate Barnard, or Barnard. I don't, Barnard, Barnard. I'm yeah. going to say Barnard. I'm not sure. She is a very, very famous Oklahoman. Okay. So... Um, she was born Catherine, or Kate Barnard, on May 23rd, 1875, in Geneva, Nebraska, to John P. and Rachel Schill Barnard. She was an only child. Oh. She died February 23rd, 1930, in Oklahoma City. She was a devout Irish Catholic. She was also a Democrat and a social reformer. And that'll, that'll, that'll Go that's pertinent information to... here. Okay. She established the Office of Oklahoma Commissioner of Charities and Corrections in 1907, and she actually held that office until 1915. Oh, interesting. She was the first woman elected to a state office in Oklahoma. Oh, cool. Elected. Yeah. So keep that in mind as well. She's also the second woman elected to statewide public office in the U.S. Oh, wow. So, yes. Who's the first? I didn't look that up. Oh, okay. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) She works as an educator of a, of several different one-room schoolhouses in the Oklahoma City area. She was a secretary to the territorial government. Uh-huh. She suffered from poor health most of her adult life. She was approximately five feet tall. Wait, you said poor health. Did they specify, like... It kind of goes what? into it towards the end oh, of her okay. life. They kind of go into it, but at the beginning, they didn't okay. really go into it. Uh, she was only five feet tall and weighed 90 to 98 pounds. So she was tiny. She was a small, She small was woman. petite. Yes. She suffered from a heart condition, so. Oh, okay. And respiratory conditions and depression. Oh. Uh, her mother died when she was two years old. Oh. They were living in Kansas at the time. Her father traveled a lot for work. He was an attorney for the rail, the railroads. Oh, And okay. so he traveled a lot. So when she, when her mother passed away, she was then kind of put off on different family members and different friends. In 1981, her father actually had found his way to Oklahoma and made a land run. Wait, did you say 1981? Ooh, 1891. I probably did say 1981. 1891, um, her father had made a land run and staked his claim near New Walla, Oklahoma. Okay. He then sent for Kate, and she joined him 
And she lived actually there on their homestead for two years alone because he was working in Oklahoma City. Oh, man. So how old was she when she was living by herself? 16. Okay. Wow. That's 16. (laughs) Well, in knowing what we know about Oklahoma during this time period, wow. That's scary. 16. Right. That's really scary. Um, In 1895, she moved to Oklahoma City to finish school where she attended St. Joseph's Academy. It was a Catholic school there in the city. Okay. And at this time, she also received her teaching certificate. Okay. She taught several one-room schools until about 1902. And I can imagine, much like today's problems, uh, Barnard became burnt out on teaching. (laughs) So I can only imagine that uh, she was teaching a one-room schoolhouse with several different grade levels. Right. And that might burn you out super fast. Yeah, I'm sure it did. She decided to take a clerical and some business courses, eventually landing herself a job with the territorial government in Guthrie. This job ended up taking her to St. Louis World Fair in 1904. She had applied to be what was called a territorial hostess. Mm -hmm. And out of the 500 applicants that applied to be this, she was the one who was awarded the position. Oh, wow. While she was there, she visited several other exhibits and lectures about social sciences and reform. Mm -hmm. And this was like, this sparked her. This was her thing. And she also met Jane Adams while she was there, who was a pioneer for social work in America. Uh She's also a feminist and kind of an internationalist. Okay. And uh, among other active social reformers at the time. Cool. Very neat. So when she returned from the World's Fair... She was inspired. She sought out working with poor, orphaned, and overworked Oklahoma City folk. And she got involved in aid and charity work. She became the head of the union label organization in Oklahoma City. Hmm. I'm not really sure what that meant. I couldn't find anything. But she also raised money for social assistance programs. She became a very accomplished guest speaker Mm -hmm. or public speaker. And she was really trying to start to make a name for herself mm-hmm. in Oklahoma City. And she wasn't supremely wealthy. Like, she wasn't overholster wealthy. Right. But her father had made enough money being an attorney, and he had a lot of little side jobs. He was called, like, a jack-of-all-trades. Mm-hmm. That he was able to put aside a lot of his money. And so they were able to fund a lot of things. But she was able to dig her heels in and fundraise just the old-fashioned way and get right. people involved. Okay. So I know it mentioned somewhere that at one time she had told, uh, had like gotten a column written, I think, in the newspaper asking for people just to quit hoarding your old clothes and old shoes in your attic, <laughs> you know, send uh-huh. them to me so we could pass them out. Well, yeah. the response was insanely overwhelming. Oh, wow. And she finally figured, I mean, she was like grateful for it, but she's like, okay. <laughs> we got to figure something else. I got to do something. You make it more organized right. and stuff. But she was very good at organizing things like oh, that nice. and getting getting stuff done, I think. Yeah. Sounds like it. Um, in 1905, the U.S. government rejected the state of Sequoia's constitution. They were insisted insistent that they do not separate the two territories, Sequoia or Indian Territory and Oklahoma Territory. They wanted one state, mm-hmm. and they wanted Sequoia to include Oklahoma Territory. So, of course, we all know that knowing this, now there was a race Uh for who could secure a constitution that would get ratified by the government, including both sets of territories. So in Shawnee in 1906, Barnard represents the Women's International Union Labor League at the Oklahoma Constitutional Convention. So here, people were going to get together 
and they were going to draft Oklahoma's constitution, mm-hmm. including both territories. Okay. She helped draft this actual document, and it was known as the Shawnee Demands. Oh, um, well, and that's it, cool. It, she was vital in helping to form the basis of the Oklahoma State Constitution. Oh, that's really neat. She really pushed social reform platforms to be included in uh-huh. the Constitution, and she did so by lots of success and just lots of persuasion. Uh-huh. She succeeded in ending child labor in our state. Oh, cool. She pushed to protect incarcerated people from being contracted out as laborers. Uh She succeeded here in doing that. She established the Office of Commissioner Charities and Corrections, an elected position within the Oklahoma State government. And remember, I said elected. Uh She was elected that position in 1907 with a vast majority of the votes, like a a sweeping slide. Oh, wow. None of the votes came from any women. They were all men? Women didn't have the right to vote yet. Oh, that's right. It was 1907. (gasps) Wow. All men. That's crazy cool. And so, of course, that solidified her post as the first woman elected to public office in Oklahoma. That's really neat. More often than not, because Barnard was a champion for children, poor people, labor unions, people with disabilities, prison inmates, (laughs) etc., this put her at odds with a lot of of those Oklahoma power brokers, those rich uh, and wealthy people. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But she persisted. Uh, still in 1906, Barnard, she was a very busy woman. She helped create the juvenile court <laughs> I think system. that's an understatement. Right, okay, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, if you just took one year of her life and tried to achieve that much in a lifetime, oh, it would man. be great. So still, I mean, this, I gave you a lot of information of what happened in 1907. Uh-huh. But still in 1906, after this constitution was drafted, she wasn't done yet. She created the juvenile court system for the state of Oklahoma. Wow. Before, and I didn't know this, but before, children would be treated like adults and would be subjected to the same rules and punishments as adults. Oh, my gosh. Of course, Kate, she believed that this was inappropriate, which I I 100% agree with. Right. Uh, she went to work creating a system that would reform children from their learned environment because she uh-huh. stated something where it's not the child's fault that they're behaving this way. It's how they are being raised. Right. Um, so she wanted to change their learned environments that caused them to become these delinquents. It's kind of like that nature versus nurture. Exactly. Kind of she thing. was a huge believer in that. So with doing so, she ended up creating a three tiered correctional system mm. for juveniles and adults. So that tier one would be, a training school. If it was mm-hmm. a juvenile delinquent, they're going to send you to a training school, get you a skill. Because mm-hmm. she was a high believer in if you don't have a skill, then you're going to commit crime. Right. Um, for those uh, offenders between the age of 16 and 25, if they were first-time offenders, they went to kind of a reformatory. Okay. And then, of course, she needed to form a state penitentiary for those older or habitual criminals mm-hmm. that we have covered a lot. <laughs> So each in this le- episode, in this podcast, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> each level would attempt to cure or quote cure the criminal with firm but clement treatment. They would provide vocational training and moral instruction. Okay. Ideally, the inmates would produce a good needed in other state agencies or areas, and eventually lead the system with a skill to avoid poverty, mm-hmm. because that's what she said was the root of all poverty. the trouble was poverty. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it still is. Too. Right. Exactly. So in June of 1907, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Barnard attended the National Conference of Charities and Corrections. 
she gave an unscheduled speech while there, and she was said to have mesmerized this cosmopolitan group because there was lots of people from all over the United States, a lot of them from the East Coast. And here was this tiny little girl from Oklahoma Territory. I mean, we're not even a state yet. Right. Amongst these leading politicians and other leaders, and she was able to just captivate them. Her goal was simply to win support for the Oklahoma Constitution Mm -hmm. uh, with its many progressive reforms that President Roosevelt, Mm -hmm. Theodore Roosevelt, he wasn't in favor of. He didn't Mm -hmm. like it. Okay. It ended up working, though, because she gets on her platform. She gives, she says her piece. Uh Telegrams and letters start pouring into Washington, D.C., and so, and it worked. He ended up... (laughs) changing and the constitution of Oklahoma was ratified thus allowing us to become a state awesome this led Barnard as being recognized as one of the west's most prominent progressive leaders she was a woman Uh who didn't have a right to vote and so I was going to read to you her vision of what she wanted a state to look like it was it's from a book called an Oklahoma I never I never had seen Uh and it's about an alternative view to Oklahoma history and it's it doesn't really have an author, but it says it's edited by Davis D. Joyce. And so it's a very interesting book. It's a very uh, it's a very long read, I would say. But it's got a lot of altering views yeah. or maybe like the second side of the story. Okay. So her vision of the West as the place of opportunity merged with her quest to establish a society free of want and full of justice. Although she anticipated that the West would become the scene of industrialization and urbanization, she wanted such development harnessed. The West could grow economically, yet escape the social problems of unemployment and poverty by learning from the mistakes of the East. Her self-identification as a Westerner and her image of that region tempered Barnard's personal outlook, her reform ideology, and her political career. Oh, so she really, which I don't think is a bad idea, she wanted mm-hmm. to learn from our country, the first half of our country's mistakes. Right. And as it started to expand west, she wanted us to learn from it and try to make it better. Right. Which, as a nation, we should do, try and do anyway. Exactly. So because of the success that she had, Arizona and New Mexico territories, they sought out her help. Oh. They were like, okay, Oklahoma Territory is doing it. Let us get out from under this territorial control Uh and try to make our own states. Um, She believed in their cause to become states as well, so she helped them with reform there. She even went as far as to help with reform ideas in Texas and in Kansas, which were already established states. Uh It became apparent while Barnard was in office that she was very successful in getting her bills made into laws. She approached this process in two ways. Number one, if she wanted something passed, she mobilized public opinion. She got out there. She talked to the people. Right. And then number two, she used professional expertise. She would go out and find professionals in that area, Mm -hmm. and she would get their opinion. She would get their thoughts. She would get their knowledge and be able to back her, her wants. Right. So she was passionate about charity, especially when it involved children. She demanded that Oklahoma have compulsory education for all children. And that means that children have to go to school. Oh, okay. And so she is the reason that there is a law stating that children in Oklahoma have to go to school. Okay. 
I believe between the ages of six and 16. Wow. Okay. Um, so as the commissioner for charities and corrections, mm-hmm. she pushed for laws that required that um, compulsory education. She regulated child labor. Mm-hmm. She created the juvenile justice system. She even went up to Kansas and investigated their prisons because at the time there wasn't a penitentiary in Oklahoma. Uh-huh. So we had to send our incarcerated up to Kansas. Right. So she went and she discovered that in Kansas you could have contract laborers. So if yeah. somebody was there, I don't know, for murder or something. Yeah. And let's say a farmer needs cotton Some work picked done. or something. Yeah. Or, you know, corn picked or whatever. Right. I don't what do they grow in Kansas wheat? I don't know. Um, sorry Kansas, I love you, but I don't know. <laughs> so they could go to uh-huh. a penitentiary and pay maybe, I don't know, 20 cents a day. I don't, I don't know how much they could pay. They would yeah. pay a price right. and have an incarcerated person come and do the labor for them. Okay. That incarcerated person would get no benefit from it, would get no money, would get right. nothing. I, I assume they might get fed, but they're incarcerated. Is there a guarantee that they get fed? Probably not. Well, I mean... I think if you would, I mean, you can't work them to death. Right, so. right. But even if you did, is it that bad? If, I mean, I can imagine some of them are like, well, if they did die, meh, <laughs> I'll just get another one tomorrow. You know what I think? You know what I mean? So um, this she was just disgusted with. Right. She didn't think that was right. Mm-hmm. So she is the reason that she, that we now have what is lovingly referred to as the Big Mac. She oversaw the construction. Nice. Of the Oklahoma State Penitentiary and McAllister. Because she wanted the incarcerated Oklahomans to be under her watch. She was elected in 1907 and re-elected again, sweeping the votes by an even wider margin than she had in 07 in 1910. That's really cool. Yes. Again, not a single woman voter. Right. She oversaw private and state social institutions, such as orphanages and mental health hospitals. She fought for an eight-hour workday. She made sure that factories now had safety inspections, that construction workers were provided scaffolding so that they could stand on. She uh, pushed for the prohibition of blacklist and union blacklist, the safety for people who worked near steam boilers. They had Mm -hmm. to have some sort of protection. Oh, wow. That there had to be safety and improvement to coal mines in the state. She's like a jack of all trades. Uh, exactly. And her father was described that way, but I think it would be better to describe her that way. Yeah. She almost had her hand in everything. Yeah. Her work allowed Oklahoma to become the first state to experiment with a mother's pension. Now, I wasn't sure what that was, so I had to look it up. Is that like maternity leave? No. And that's because that's kind of what I thought it was, too. A mother's pension is a pension that the state would pay to a widowed mother who relied on her children working outside the home to make ends meet. Ah. With children now being forced to attend school until 16, their families could miss out on the funds that children would earn to help feed, clothe, or house them. Right. So she brought forth that, well, if we were able to pay the mothers Mm -hmm. what their children would have been making. Now the kids can go to school. They can learn. Mm -hmm. They can, you know, become parts of society. And they won't suffer missing out on this uh, money. Or the moms, you know, those stupid, you know what I mean. Anyways, there were opponents to this. Okay. 
mostly people who relied on the work of those young children. Right. But they also stated that, well, that's not fair. These 15 and 16-year-olds won't be able to get jobs after school, and this will lead to idleness and trouble. That That's not what it meant at all. It means they'd have to get an after-school job. Right. They School came first, and then they could get a job after school. They ended up working it out, I think, where the law is, ends at 14, I think, Mm-hmm. We are forced to go to school until 14, mm-hmm. and then after that, you don't really have to. The law also stated that children aged 14 to 16 could have an after-school job. Okay. Uh, she wanted more humane treatment of mental health crisis patients and criminals. She fought against the abuse and guardianship for Native American children who were orphaned. And we'll get way more into this, but it was ext- this was extremely unpopular for her to step into. Oh, I'm sure. Um, because very wealthy and very powerful men were awarded these guardianships and they profited from them greatly. And speaking of Native Americans, she fought to protect the five tribes members. Uh-huh. Oh, cool. Shockingly, Barnard did not support women's suffrage. What? She was, in fact, an anti-suffragist. Really? Now, before... We all turn this podcast off and brush her off. Listen to why. And this is from page 72 of that same book that I read from earlier that in Oklahoma I'd never seen before. Unlike many women progressive leaders, Barnard did not endorse suffrage until late in her political career. She felt suffragists attached too much importance to winning the ballot, and she doubted their claim that women would make ideal voters. Although she believed that women could use the vote to protect themselves from economic exploitation, she did not believe that women would behave more ethically at the polls than men. Instead of women voters purifying politics, the vote would diminish the moral superiority of women. To substantiate her view, she often referred to an election she had observed in Denver. In that election, lower-class women were herded to the polls by ward bosses but middle-class women abstained from voting. She also argued that when enough women demanded the vote, men would give in to them. Consequently, woman suffrage did not merit Barnard's time and attention. Other reforms were more pressing. Oh, interesting. So in her mind, she had all this other stuff that she needed to accomplish before women got votes. Uh-huh. And, and I, when I was listening to that Very Okay podcast by the Oklahoma Historical Society... It was more along the fact, it's like, it's not that she was against it. Mm -hmm. She was more like, look at everything I have accomplished. Look at the positions I have been voted into with not one woman's vote. And I did all this. Why can't women do this? Why do they have to vote in order to be able to do this? She makes a point. She made a good point. And I think when you look at her life and you're like, not once did she have any voting, and mm-hmm. she was still able to accomplish so yeah. much more. Yeah, absolutely. Than a lot of us have who do have the right to <laughs> right. vote. Now, am I saying that it was a waste? No, I'm glad that we have the right to vote. Right. We deserve that. But I can see her point to this. Right. So in other words, she was just much too busy and had more pressing issues to address than women's rights to vote. And I know a lot of women suffragists went to her and were like, will you come speak? And she's like, no. I got <laughs> prison to build to do i got other (laughs) stuff to do i don't have time for this right and i okay 
She did eventually come around and support women's rights to vote. She did think it was important that women have a role in making laws and taking up causes in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. That was very important to her. But like I said before, when you look at her legacy, she did all of this, all of it, Mm -hmm. without women voters. She was the only woman elected to a major state office. She won both 1907 and 1910 election with an overwhelming number of voters and voters from all parties. Not just her own. Mm -hmm. It is quoted that, quote, while Kate, for much of her career, attached little significance to women's suffrage, she firmly believed that women as office holders and private citizens had important contributions to make in politics and reform. Mm. Nice. So let's go back to that guardianship that I had talked about. Okay. All right. And this will sound very familiar. I know that you are very familiar with the Osage Mm -hmm. Indian murders, and that is something that we will cover one day. That's just going (laughs) to take a lot for us to do. Yeah. In the early 1900s, white men were awarded positions of financial advisor or Mm -hmm. keeper of Native Americans' property and oil or mineral rights. Yes. It was believed Native Americans were too ignorant to control their own finances. That's ignorant in itself. Exactly. It's true that natives didn't understand property values. Mm -hmm. However, no one at any time took the time to educate them in it. Right. They were also easily coerced into agreeing to or handing over guardianship. Mm -hmm. The quote, man, wanted to keep them ignorant. Oh, absolutely. Because of certain laws, only property rights and mineral rights could transfer to other natives. So when Native children were orphaned, what would be done about their inherited properties or rights? Enter guardianships now. Mm-hmm. Because we know from the Osage that these Natives were assigned or awarded financial advisors who kept mm-hmm. grips over their money. Well, what yeah. happens when the children of some of those Natives were murdered? Now these are guardians. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. Wealthy and more often than not, of course, corrupt yeah. white men would be awarded guardianship of Native children. Mm-hmm. These men would benefit from the royalties the children re- would receive from the land, mineral, and or oil. Ideally, the money was supposed to have been banked mm-hmm. and saved for the Native children when they became of age. Right. But. We all know that's not what happened. We know. <laughs> we know the ways of those men back in the day. Greedy. They, they used it to make their pockets fat. Mm-hmm. One man was reported to be the guardian, just oh. wait, to 350 children. Holy cow. 350? Many, yeah. Many, if not almost all of the Native children, were neglected. Of course they were. They were left to live alone, impoverished, oh or relegated to another family who their, quote, guardian would pay to home. Oh, my gosh. It was reported that this came to Barnard's attention when she w- when she was told about these three children living in a tree in Muskogee. In a tree? She packs up her things, uh-huh. takes herself to Muskogee, finds three children who were found begging in the town Aww. and living in a tree. Oh, my gosh. She was furious. Oh, I bet. And it came to find out. That there was some man, uh-huh. very wealthy man, living in that town as their guardian. Oh he had no God. idea where they were at. He probably did. He probably knew they were living in a he tree because care, it was very probably. quite well known in that town. He probably just didn't care. Right. 
1908, federal officials transferred the ability to manage the holdings miners had to the county probate courts. It used to be federally run, like the federally judges would pass it out. Now mm. it transferred to the county probate courts, mm. thus making it easier for local judges to help their best friend, best mm. pals, best buddies. Yeah. One man was given $2,500 annually, and I didn't do the inflation calculator. I hate that I didn't. I'm sorry. Of a native girl's royalty. However, so $2,500 a year. Mm -hmm. That's how much he got for being her guard, or that's how much she got from her royalty payments. Mm -hmm. He decided to pay another family $10 a month to house her. <sighs> 10 times 12 is 120. Mm -hmm. So he got, he, got, he got a fat rest of the money. Right. These atrocities made Barnard become involved. Not only did it deal with orphaned children, which was one of her, you know, her things. Right. It dealt with corruption and, most importantly, immorality. Mm -hmm. I told you at the beginning she was a devout Catholic, mm -hmm. and she really was. She was very, very faithful. She was very religious, and she carried a lot of her religion into her politics. Mm -hmm. So she hired a lawyer by the name of J.H. Stolper to help her charge men with the sham guardianships. Okay. In 1912, Barnard and Stolper recovered $11 million. Wow. Of orphans' money and prosecuted these so-called guardians. Wow. This led to her downfall. Oh, really? Yes. In 1914, as she's still leading this reform for mm -hmm. the protection of these Native American children... She was pushing for these safeguards of their estate rights mm -hmm. as minors. This angered a lot of powerful men, in particular William H. Murray, a.k.a. Alfalfa Bill Murray, which is another person we probably need to do an episode on. Okay. Because he's got a very dark past. Mm, okay. From what little that I did read about him, he seems to not be such a bright, shining Oklahoma star. Oh, fantastic. Um, I like those kinds. <laughs> Barnard's office with the state suddenly went under investigation, thanks to Murray. Oh, and I'm sure they found a lot of things. Oh, yes. The state legislature cut her office's budget um, because she was, it was frivolous. Mm. Um, so much so that she couldn't even afford to purchase stamps. Oh, my god. She couldn't afford to pay her staff, so she had to let even her lawyer go. She borrowed her own money just to try to keep it afloat because she didn't have the money to buy paper. Oh, my gosh. Even the press at this time started to turn against her, deeming her frivolous and mentally unstable. And she felt people were indifferent to the sufferings of the Native Americans at the, home, at the hands of Oklahomans. And she was 100% correct. Well, yeah, because they were all lining their pockets. Right. In 1915, Kate left office, yet privately continued to campaign for Native American property rights. Her health at this time was in very poor condition, she ended up collapsing from suspected exhaustion. I'm sure stress played a role in that. Yes. I'm sure. I think in, throughout most of her life, she was very lonely. Mm -hmm. She never married. Okay. She didn't have any siblings. Um, her father died very early in her career. And she just couldn't find, I think, her people. Mm -hmm. And she felt she was beautiful. She yeah. was beautiful. And so, but I think 
she had that personality that men did not want during that time period, if that makes sense. She was a strong woman. Oh, absolutely. She was absolutely strong. Independent. Yes. So due to her illnesses, her mind started to be clouded by medication. She Mm. was in pain a lot. She was paranoid. Mm -hmm. Um, She had planned at one time to write a memoir of her life, yet it was never completed. Well, if she was paranoid, do you think she had been threatened before? So that maybe played into it? I bet so. I bet so. I guarantee. Just knowing what we know from, like, the Osage murders and how they treated people that way, I guarantee they said stuff to her. I guarantee she was scared. Yeah. Okay. That's such a shame. In 1930... She did pass away alone in Oklahoma City. A hotel maid found Barnard dead in the bathtub of the Oklahoma City Egbert Hotel. She was known to have lived there on the fifth floor for years. No family claimed her body or made funeral arrangements. Thus, a private citizen did it all for her. That's so sad. However, 1,400 people attended her funeral at St. Joseph's Catholic Church in downtown Oklahoma City. The flags at the state capitol all flew at half mass, and seven former governors were her honorary pallbearers. Oh, wow. She was buried next to her father in Oklahoma City's Fairlawn Cemetery. Her gravesite went unmarked until the 1980s. Oh, interesting. How come? Did they say? It never said why. Her death led Angie Debo to continue the plight of allotment crimes in Oklahoma. And so she was another person who kind of picked up the slack. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, in the 1930s and was, because at that point we were Carried still... the torch. Yeah, we were still treating Native American people like trash. Yeah, wow. <sighs> Looking back, Barnard and other union activists made up the core of Oklahoma progressivism. This contradicted what many, or who many historians claimed were responsible for progressivism. They claimed that only middle-class professional men were progressive. And they weren't. Kate Barnard was female. And was one of the biggest progressives our nation has known. Mm-hmm. She was successful due in part to her alliance with Oklahoma Farmers Union. They were a group that was often left out of Oklahoma politics, mm-hmm. which is surprising because at the time, before oil came into play, our number one economic resource resource was agriculture. Yeah. And it's still our number two. Yeah. So, I you know... You can't leave the farmers out, but I know no. even today they still they still fight to leave them out. She helped to load the Oklahoma Constitution with popular reforms. She helped control the selfish corporate interest mm-hmm. that was starting to creep its way in. During her time, Kate Barnard pushed 30 laws into the books. She worked on 107 cases in 25 different counties with attorney J.H. Stolper, implicating corporations, politicians, and judges. This led to a federal investigation by the U.S. Board of Indian Commissions. Oh, wow. In 1982, Barnard was inducted into the Oklahoma Women's Hall of Fame. A bronze statue of her can be seen in the Oklahoma State Capitol building. It was commissioned in 2001. Cool. And here's a kooky fact. Kate Barnard herself, she's a pretty upstanding woman, uh-huh. but remember I told her I'd learned about her in our, my first case. Right. She advocated for outlaw Henry Starr. <laughs> Barnard helped return him back to society, believing Starr had been reformed. Oh, man. Saying he was one of the most reformed inmates she had ever known. But as we all know... He can pull a fast one. He fooled her. (laughs) Other things said about her, Barnard was believed to be a holy terror to slothful or uncaring officials when it came to inmates. 
So if she thought you were mistreating somebody, she was coming for you. Yeah. <laughs> she hated the prison system, thinking that it was medieval, thinking that Americans should not have prison systems. We should find something better. Interesting. Um, she believed herself to be a perceptive judge of character. This was uh, a quote. some parts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Barring Henry Starr. <laughs> I guess we're all allowed one mistake, right? Right. I mean, she can't be too perfect. Right. right? Exactly. <laughs> this is a quote about that she made about herself. I have studied men. Until I know from the shape of their hands and head, the gait of their walk and the contour of their faces, much of their mode of life and the character of their thoughts. Hmm. Interesting. And that is the one and only Kate Barnard. And there are some great, great pieces, great resources that I used. I forgot to share those. Um, Outlaw Tales of Oklahoma by Robert Barr Smith. Uh She's mentioned in there because she advocated for a lot of those incarcerated outlaws. Oklahoma Originals by Juanita Mullins. Mm -hmm. I love that book. Yes. It Happened in Oklahoma by Robert L. Dorman. An Oklahoma I Had Never Seen Before by Davis D. Joyce. Oklahoma Historical Society at OklahomaHistoricalSociety.com. One Woman's Political Journey, Kate Barnard and the Social Reform, 1874 to 1830 by Lynn Musselwhite. This Land is Her Land by Sarah Epler Janda. And I had heard about this book uh-huh. on that podcast, a very okay podcast where I also heard a lot about this. Mm-hmm. And A Life on Fire, Oklahoma's Kate Barnard by Connie Cronley. Very nice. That she. was so cool. Thanks. That thanks. Was so interesting. It's she's such a powerhouse. Powerhouse. And then to believe that be, she accomplished so much with really so little rights herself. Right. To the point where they were like, if she would have gotten behind women's suffrage, would we have gotten it passed a few years earlier? Possibly. But um, but she was kind of right. Like. She was able to accomplish all of that. Well, and it seems like she was, not that she wasn't concerned with goings on in the nation, but she was more home focused. Uh, Yes, yes, yes. She was focused on, I'm going to, I can accomplish or I can work on what's happening in my state. Right. We'll let the others figure out the nation. Right. So, and she did a lot. And she, oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's incredible. Cool. And I'm going to tell you, I probably just scratched the surface. Of Sounds her. like yeah. it. Man. Very nice. That's really cool. Yeah. Thanks. I did. There was a lot of things I didn't know. Yeah. Thanks. Wow. Good job. Thanks. Okay. You ready? Yes. Okay. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that I wasn't really a sports person. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just keep that in mind. Okay. <laughs> okay, so I decided to cover Helen Erlene Reisinger. Okay. And my sources are Erlene Reisinger from the All American Girls Professional Baseball League at AAP or I'm sorry, AAGPBL.org. Erlene Reisinger by Jim Sargent from the Society for American Baseball Research at SABR.org. Okay. So early life. Helen Erlene Reisinger, she did go by Erlene. She was born on March 20th, 1927 to Homer Francis Soupy, and I'm doing quotation marks like it was a nickname, Soupy, and Lizzie Mae Reisinger in the rural small town of Hess, Oklahoma. How does one receive the nickname Soupy? I don't know. It didn't really say, (laughs) so I'm not sure. 
Um, Hess is located in the southwestern part of the state near the Texas border. Okay. I didn't know where it was. And so it was like, oh. Hello, Hess. Hello, Hess. (laughs) So she grew up in a sharecropping family surrounded by hard times. And, of course, this was uh, right in the middle of the Great Depression. And, of course, at this time, Oklahoma was going through the Dust Bowl. So there was a lot of things going on at the time. So she ended up uh, picking cotton in order to earn money for shoes and clothes. Mm -hmm. And she was the oldest out of five kids. And I believe she was the only girl. So she had four brothers. (laughs) She gained the nickname Beans for her favorite food staple. And one source said it was because... Um, her parents called her beans because she would eat pork and beans like every Ooh. day for breakfast. <laughs> oh, but I guess that's like a British thing though, you know, like beans and toast and it's all it, it's like, yeah, it's a thing beans on toast. Yeah. But so they called her beans. So that was her nickname. Oh, oh well, soupy or beans. I don't know. Which is worse. <laughs> soupy beans. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, she was tall, around 6'1", and she was slender, and she was described as attractive with brown hair and hazel eyes, and she loved sports. When uh, Erlene was in high school, basketball, baseball, and softball were the main sports at her school, and Erlene would often escape the rigor of working in the cotton field to go play baseball with her family and friends. And her father was actually the one who taught her how to throw a baseball. Nice. And uh, he taught her at a very young age. And he was a Sandlot first baseman and taught her how to throw overhand. And so they would play catch together just about almost every day. So although she was a good athlete... Girls were not allowed to play baseball at the time, mm-hmm. and or on the school team, I should say. And so Southside High did have a girls team for basketball and softball. However, Erlene was really kind of too tall to play with other girls because they're she was six one. It said That's she not was fair though. It said that she was too tall to play with most girls and. <laughs> When did there become a height limit for girls? I don't know. I think mainly she just didn't like those sports, maybe. Right. Maybe they but, weren't aggressive enough for yeah. her. Yeah. Well, because it said that she liked to hang around and play baseball with the boys. Yeah. So, here's a kooky fact. Okay. Reisinger was actually asked to coach first base and to warm up the pitchers for her school's baseball team. But she couldn't play with them? This is while she was still in school as a student. So... But she couldn't play with them? No, but she could coach them. <laughs> Is that not kind of crazy, though? Oh, my gosh. I hope she said no thanks, but she probably didn't. She's probably a good a good girl and good woman. And... Well, she probably did it because she wanted to be around. You're probably right. But. I'd be spiteful. I'd be like, I don't know if they no. paid her for it or not. I, I doubt it. After graduating from Southside High School in 1945, just three months before the end of World War II, there were very few prospects and not much of a future for Erlene. College wasn't really an option because there was just no money for her to be able to go. And honestly, there wasn't even enough money for her family to even buy the newspaper. So, 
Well, I'm trying to think too, like, where would even the nearest college be to her? Yeah, I don't even know. But also, there weren't any like factories Mm -hmm. or Mm -mm. anything like that nearby. Right. So she just ended up working in the cotton fields. And she did that for the next two years, getting paid 50 cents an hour. Gross. You know, and then it said that she pretty much thought that that would be her future, was working in the cotton fields. Terrible. So in the spring of 1947, the grocery store owner got the Daily Oklahoman um, delivered to the store. And he would let Earlene read it. Um, when she came in mm-hmm. after work and, and whatnot. One day while she was reading the Dale sports page, much to her surprise, oh. there was a traveling All-American girls baseball team going to play an exhibition game in Oklahoma City. Oh. Um, and they were doing it on their way back north from doing spring training. She said she never dreamed that such a league even existed. Mm-hmm. And she said, quote... I always wished there would be a girls' baseball team, you know? You dream a lot when you're a kid in a small town. And I think that's very true. Right, right. Uh, Erlene actually sent a postcard to the sports editor, who sent the card to the league's headquarters in Chicago. And from that, she pretty quickly received a reply back, asking her to come to Oklahoma City for a tryout. Oh, wow, good. So... She was a pitcher. Mm-hmm. She said that, you know, it was a miracle that she had even heard about the league, especially with her family right. not getting the newspaper. Yeah. And Reisinger was always interested in ball players like Allie Reynolds and later Mickey Mantle, mm-hmm. and mainly because they were from Oklahoma. Right. So Erlene was able to go to the Childs in OKC. And they decided to send her to Rockford, Illinois to play for Bill Ellington and the Peaches. Yeah. So some of these names might sound a little familiar if you've seen the movie A League of Their Own. Now, you may get into this. So post-World War II, I know that the women's league Mm -hmm. kind of ended, I guess. Except for this traveling one. They were these see. leftovers from the teams that do um, you know? I'm trying or... to think of when it started because I, I know during league... World War II, you know, women played. I can't remember when the league started, right? But the All American Girls League disbanded in 1954. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And I'll get a little into that, okay. And that didn't really answer your question, but well, I was just wondering more or less like. I didn't know at what point that a lot I guess I guess my my thing was I didn't know how long it lasted after World War II. 1954. Okay. Okay. So then a lot of the same players who didn't choose to go back to their husbands or go back to their normal wife could could continue to play. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Erlene and well and also I read a lot of these girls um, were pretty young, like teenagers, when they went into the league. Yeah. So, you know, um, I think the youngest one was a 15-year-old. Yeah. And, you know, they just Well, if, they she, just finished school by, if she finished school in Oklahoma, she didn't have to go to school anymore. <laughs> <laughs> 
Could have been our after-school job, right? <laughs> but we'll get a little more into okay, that okay. In, in just a little bit. Sorry, jumping ahead. Nope, you're fine. Um, she borrowed money from the bank and started on the train for Rockford, Illinois. By the time she got to Chicago, she had to change trains. Mm-hmm. And she was so homesick that she actually ended up taking the next train back home. Oh, no. And luckily, she had enough money to get her back home. Yeah. But um, she ended up having to go back to the cotton fields and work so that she could repay the bank loan. So, I mean, but you, thinking about it, she's she's probably never been. a small town kid. She'd never probably been. 18 years old. No, she was probably 20 at the time, but still a kid. Right. And she had probably never been past the city. It was probably the biggest city she'd ever been to. And and she was traveling alone. Yeah. It'd be scary. Oh, for for sure. sure. So, getting into her baseball career. So in 1948, Erlene Reisinger got a second chance. That year, the league started a team in Springfield, Illinois, which was only just about a one-day bus ride. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot more easy for her to go back and forth between home if she wanted to go. Yeah. The manager of the team, Carson Bigby, and the chaperone, Mary Ruddis, took Erlene under their wings. And she made it as a pitcher for the team. In spring for the Springfield Sallies, the Sallies didn't make it. Unfortunately, <laughs> they didn't get enough people in attendance at the games, mm-hmm. and so they just um, they played on the road for the second half of the season. And reason, or I'm sorry, Reisinger said that they just didn't have enough good players. Not yeah. that they didn't have any good players; they just didn't have enough. Yeah. During Reisinger's first season as an All-American, the league converted to overhand pitching, which was a change from the sidearm delivery of 1947. And I did read that the rules and regulations were constantly changing throughout the time of the AAGBPL. Like, it was, you know, one season this would be a a rule and then the next it wouldn't or... Vice versa. Like, I, it sounded like it was annoying. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I also read that the league converted to overhand pitching, or before they converted to overhand pitching, that it was a weird mix of baseball and softball because they would throw underhanded and then, like, another year it would be the sidearm. So it was, like, this weird mix, and then they finally converted to overhand. I'm learning so much because I... I am not, I am, I like to watch some sports. Uh-huh. I don't know the history behind most all sports. Yeah, I I'll don't be either. And in my mind, like, I've seen the movie A League of Their Own, and that's probably my biggest history lesson I have <laughs> in baseball or any other baseball movie, <laughs> Angels in the Outfield. Um, but I, I guess I had always just assumed that, you know, we had the Women's Baseball League during World War II, and when it ended, maybe that's what led to softball. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like softball was a, around right, way before that. Yeah. And so it's interesting that they had or allowed a women's baseball team. And I'm, surpri- I'm really, what I'm surprised of is that they weren't like, you have your own league, it's softball, go play uh-huh. it. Yeah. Well, and... Um, I did read that the the ball size would change, and 
Uh, well, yeah, something else. Oh, they started um, bigger. This was during the time they started using their red thread on the baseballs because yes. it was easier for people to see. Yeah. Okay. And I was like, oh wow. But then you know, like the nowadays, things... softballs are like lime green. Right. It's like the things you learn. I know. In 1949, Reisinger was asked to go on the South American tour, oh. and she jumped at the chance. So during this tour, so now she's not homesick anymore. Now no. she's used. To she's trip. starting. I think she wants this, to see the world. I think at this point she's starting to. She's probably made some friends. Right. And right. Right. Feeling a little more comfortable and more independent, maybe. Yeah. So during this tour, they had two teams, the Americans and the Cubans. Reisinger was on the American team with Johnny Rawlings, Mm -hmm. and he's the one who taught her the finer points of pitching. So before, all she kind of knew was how to throw the ball, and Rawlings was the manager for the Grand Rapids Chicks and got Reisinger on the team in Grand Rapids and she played for the uh, she played for them for the rest of her baseball career. So from 1948 up to 1954 she played for Grand Rapids or no, 1949 to 1954. Excuse me. And then um, 1954 was when the league disbanded like we mm-hmm, said. Mm-hmm. But anyway, when asked what types of pitches she threw the most, Reisinger replied with, quote, high and tight. I had a good fastball and a nickel curve. Now, I don't know what a nickel <laughs> curve is, so don't even ask me. <laughs> but I'm going to Google it right now. Okay. So I had a good fastball and a nickel curve. I could throw the ball past most of them, but I got accused of pitching high and tight when my fastball went in. When my fastball went in really good, it tailed in toward the right-handed batters. During the years she played for Grand Rapids, Reisinger was a regular on the mound and fashioned three winning seasons for the Chicks. Her best season was in 1953, compiling a 15-10 record and enjoying career best in ERA, which is earned runs average with 1.75 and strikeouts with 121. Nice. Wow. Overall, she posted an All-American lifetime record of 73 to 80 for a winning percentage of 0.477. I'll be honest, I don't know what any of that means. I did ask the fellas at work who tried to explain it. but 47%. She won 47% of her games. I think that's what that means. 0.477? Well, if you times it by 100, it would be 47%. Oh. Well, sounds good. (laughs) I I think that's what it means. I think. I'm not for sure. Like I said, I'm not a sports person, which you're probably thinking, why did you pick a (laughs) pitcher? Well, I love the movie A League of Their Own. I just, I've always liked it. Uh, And so, it's a good movie. I like it too. I got curious and I was like, I wonder if there was any ballplayers from Oklahoma in this league. So I Googled it. Ding, 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 ding. And her name popped up. <laughs> so, uh, let's see. Yeah, so the fellows at work tried to explain all this stuff to me. I, I'm pretty sure that's what that means. And I'll Google it really fast. Not all of that stuck. So, sorry, guys. <laughs> Thanks for trying. Uh, she was known as a tough pitcher to hit, and she threw a good fastball, a curve, and a changeup. But she often walked more batters than she liked. 
Erlene Beans Reisinger helped her team take the 1953 league championship when she faced Kalamazoo cleanup batter Doris Sammy Sams with two outs. The bases were loaded and the chicks ahead by one run. She clinched the title by striking out Sams, who was a two-time league player of the year and a six-time all-star and had homered in her previous at-bat. The trophy is on display at the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Reisinger had a 2.51 career-earned run average in the AAGPPL, and 1953 was her best season. Nice. I mentioned it earlier, but the league disbanded in 1954. Many reasons factored into it. So other interests and forms of recreation began to claim the attention of many fans. Yeah. And those attractions included popular programs on TV, mm-hmm. more major league baseball games on TV, uh, more participation by people in golf, tennis, badminton, and other individual games. Come on, Jess. We're going to go play badminton this weekend. Man, I would fall on my face. You, this is random. Do you want to know what other sport is like making a huge comeback? Pickleball? I know! Pickleball! <laughs> <laughs> I had to ask... Um, Where can we go play? I think they're making some... Pickleball courts? courts? Or, yeah. I have not played since I was in eighth grade. I've never played. I had to ask Ruben what it was. <laughs> um, Americans were also witnessing the stalemate in the Korean War in the early 1950s. Yes. And the increase in anti-communist fears known as McCarthyism. The Red Scare. The boom in production and sales of automobiles. Yeah. At this time, women were increasingly facing social pressures to conform to traditional gender roles. So, in other words, the American woman's place, Mm -hmm. quote, quote, was in the home with her children. Mm. All of these trends meant that many Americans developed new recreational interests, enjoyed access to a variety of activities, and spent a lot less time going to local ballparks. Although Major League Baseball, of course, remained popular. Yes. Basically, the American people were busy going out and doing other things, and the league was losing money Mm -hmm. and decided to cut their losses. Makes sense. So, a little bit after baseball for her. During her early years in Grand Rapids, Reisinger worked at Jordan Buick because the owner would give her time off to play baseball. Following her final season, she trained to become an x-ray technician for one year at the Butterworth Hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Wow. I'll admit, when I read Butterworth, all I could think about was maple syrup. Oh, all I thought about was a turkey. <laughs> Those are butter balls, though, I guess. <laughs> oh, Butterworth, that is, that is syrup. Okay. <laughs> in 1955, she left Butterworth Hospital to take x-rays for three orthopedic surgeons And she continued that service until 1969. Wow. Leaving the x-ray business, she served as an orthopedic assistant in a local doctor's office for more than 20 years, retiring in 1991. Reisinger liked living in Michigan, especially in the summer, which, (laughs) I mean... I wonder why. Why? With our Oklahoma summers, I don't blame the girl. Well, living in southwestern Oklahoma... Can you blame her? I don't think it's ever cold there, even in the winter. (laughs) All I know is 
It's hot. Yeah, you especially know? there. Uh, the Oklahoma native enjoyed returning home to her roots to visit family and friends in Hess, where in 1973, she was inducted into the Jackson County Sports Hall of Fame. Nice. Hess would always be considered her home. Mm-hmm. And Reisinger was actually a consultant on the movie A League of Their Own. No, yay! Based on the AAGPBL. She even had her picture taken with movie stars Rosie O'Donnell and Madonna. Nice. She never let her rise to fame go to her head. Instead, she always wanted to mentor young women to reach for the stars. And she wrote a one-page autobiography to send to young women to help them realize that dreams can come true. She once said, quote, When I say baseball did everything for me, it's true. Possibly I would still be in Hess, Oklahoma, which isn't a bad place to live if you have a profession and can drive someplace to work. At that time, I had nothing, and now I feel satisfied with my life, and I am a very happy person. Jim Sargent said it best in his article from the Society for American Baseball Research, quote, A good pitcher during the league's last six years, Beans Reisinger achieved a great deal along her journey from rural Oklahoma, a talented female athlete who dreamed the baseball dream. She ended up not only playing in the historic All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, the only professional league ever to play women's baseball, but also she helped her team win the 1953 championship by striking out one of the circuit's greatest players. Thus, the baseball career of Bean Streisinger, an unlikely hero, provided another illustration of the first-class women whose diamond skills made a winner out of the storied All-American League. Freisinger stayed in Grand Rapids until 2006 when she returned home to Oklahoma to be with her family. Helen Erlene Beans Reisinger passed away at 81 years old on July 29, 2008 at the Plantation Village Nursing Home in Altus. Um, at the time, she was survived by four brothers and numerous nieces and nephews and cousins, oh, wow. and she was buried in Hess, Oklahoma. Wow. And that is Erlene Beans Reisinger, pitcher... And the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. I love it. So cool. I kind of rushed through that, but do I know? It's perfect for spring baseball starting. Well, and, you know, it's, uh, I don't know. It's just interesting. I know. I like it. That was awesome. Well, I didn't know anything about any of that except for the movie Elite (laughs) Well, if you haven't seen that movie, you should definitely check it out. Well, yeah. All you people out there. (laughs) Yeah. Or if you have seen it, watch it again. Yes, yes. So, anyway. Wow, thanks. That was great. (laughs) Thanks. All right. Well, anything we need to wrap up? No? You want to tell them where they can find us? Of course, of course. Remember that we are on all major podcasting streaming platforms, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and google you can also find us on our socials at curious cousins okay on instagram at curious cousins okay podcast on facebook and we're still looking for 400 followers to give away a free book of your choice Mm -hmm. from i think we picked out four or five i can't remember 
Yeah. So we, I mean, we didn't, we're not going to list like all of our books, but like our very favorite ones. Like I think we have like you four give or five us of them. you give us a dark history, a true crime, or a paranormal, and we will and we recommend will send you. We will that recommend, one. and then you can pick what you want. Exactly. So yeah, and if you would rate, follow, and review us please. on your favorite platforms, please, 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 even on Facebook and Instagram too, we greatly appreciate it. We if would. you have any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, suggestions, listener tales, just stories, or just want to say hi, you can reach us at CuriousCousinsOK at Gmail. And just tell them what to keep it. Keep it kooky and spooky. Bye. Bye.